0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. Good morning. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that explores our wonderful and crazy human existence and experience. Featuring brilliant, dynamic, creative, and caring people who are contributing to what Charles Eisenstein calls the more beautiful world we know is possible. Today, we continue our new ongoing series with undiagnosed visionaries with a great interview with Kelly McDowell, a grad student here at Goddard. And because she works Friday mornings, we did this interview last week during an extended lunch break. The sequence of the interview was a little unusual in that we began with what was on her mind from the night before, and some of her guilty pleasures, and then went into her undiagnosed visionary life work that, she most, that she's most passionate about, and then finishing up with her very unusual background and early upbringing. So if any of that seems a little odd to you in any way, don't worry. It all works out. I have a special guest, Kelly McDowell. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, Tonya. It's wonderful to have you. Yes. It's wonderful to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> Me too. I have no idea what we're going to do. That's. I mean, best. I have s- a few uh, vague ideas about what we could talk about, and we'll either get there or not. Love it. <laughs> 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 and it's great that you're just so open and receptive to anything
1: most people don't let me talk as much as you would so yeah it's you, a pleasure do you like talking love
0: it when i was in here with you on carla's show like a month or two ago you were just so much fun to listen <laughs> to you were so effusive so enthusiastic thank you. thank you you just injected everything with with this zest and and a little
1: kelster spice
0: kelster spice i like that thank you what is kelster spice
1: It involves a lot of adjectives: outgoing, outlandish. You know, you'll never know what's going to come out next. It's kind of when I take my filter
0: off. Well, you can keep your filter off. Okay. Let loose. Okay. Go hog wild.
1: All right. Well, it's Monday, so how wild can we
0: get? I have no idea. (laughs) How wild can we get?
1: Um, pretty wild.
0: So, what's what's the beginning of the week like for you? In terms of wildness?
1: Well, Monday is always my decompression time for the Sunday night episode of Game of Thrones, which is my weekly passion that I'm obsessed with. And um, it's anticipation all week long until I <laughs> sit there and I hear that. And that's when everything inside of me gets worked up and I'm like, let's watch, let's watch. And then Monday, I I may be on the internet looking for some insider scoops on what's going to happen in the next episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so have, are you currently decompressed from last night's episode or are you still decompressing?
1: I'm still energized from last night's really? episode. A lot came together in last night's episode.
0: Well... I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So I'm I'm a week behind you. Okay. So I will say... No spoilers.
1: <laughs> no spoilers, but I will say that a lot of great things are going to come together. And I will say that I was hysterically crying last night.
0: Wow. Game of Thrones has a history of some very dramatic... Twists. Absolutely. Dramatically unexpected twist, which I think is one of its strong suits. It's probably yeah. its strongest suit. Absolutely. I mean, I- it is very well produced. Yeah. And it seems like it must have an incredibly expensive budget.
1: Definitely. I mean, I can't even pick where the, the wall is in real life. You know, where could that actually be filmed? All of those snow
0: scenes and... But don't you watch the credits to look yeah. at... They do film in different countries around the world.
1: Scotland is where the wall is filmed, actually.
0: Ah, I don't remember those details at all. I know too many of them. So do you have any other kind of obsessions like that currently in your life? Or is Uh that it? I mean, right now, Game of Thrones is
1: is always on my mind. But I'm able to put it on pause. <laughs> it's always on my mind. <laughs> really? It's like that, yeah. I mean, all I can do is creatively think about how the characters are going to come together in the next episode. And I've been making predictions for a really long time. And
0: How's your track record for predictions? On point. Really? On point. Do you foresee some of the outrageous twists that have happened?
1: No, not the the mass killings because I don't think my brain has that kind of capacity. Like now is a great episode for everyone to just die. I kind of have the love for all the characters, except for Joffrey, and want them to keep going and their plots to thicken more. So, yeah, I think big twists and how, I mean, in watching Game of Thrones, you know, winter is coming. There's a problem. This is this is what is coming. So, obviously, somebody is going to have to fight the White Walkers. And that's my biggest plot
0: description that I can foresee. So Game of Thrones has been on for a few years now. Season six right now. Season six. Do they do like one season A year. A year? Yeah. So six so it's been like five or six years. Five years, years now? yeah. Wow. And
1: wow. there's only one more season after this one.
0: Really? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. For certain?
1: For certain. And all of the books for Game of Thrones went up to five. So all this stuff in season six and seven that are happening are not written yet by Georgia or Marion. So it's nobody really knows.
0: So have have there been other things like this? Yes. In the past that have lived up to this level of obsession and yes and enjoyment yes what's the most what's what's the most recent one before this
1: um I'm a little embarrassed and it's definitely a guilty guilty pleasure but I am part of Bachelor Nation I watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette Bachelor in Paradise every week when they're on I've watched every season since I was little and it is the best social experimentation that you can watch really I've never heard of it The Bachelor it's on network TV and it's it's not something that I'm proud to watch, <laughs> but I love it and I will admit it. And it is a reality show where there's a bachelor or a bachelorette and then random people of the opposite sex come and try to win their attention. And at the end, the bachelor or bachelorette proposes or gets engaged and it's starting with like... 28 women for one man and they're all competing for his love so he's dating all of these women at the same time i mean what else could be more entertaining than watching people submit themselves to this kind of situation
0: i find it hysterical (laughs) (laughs) so maybe it's time to contextualize this conversation which Mm. which has certainly gone in an Mm. unexpected direction Mm -hmm, which is wonderful Um, i don't know how people out there listening are thinking about this conversation about a television program or a cable it's an h b o show, so h b o is known for doing extremely high quality right programs so it's not really at the level of television it's m- much more cinematic than that. Mm-hmm you work at Goddard Mm -hmm. but much more importantly than that you're a student at Goddard. I am a student at Goddard. I am in the
1: Goddard Graduate Institute in the Social Innovation and Sustainability Program and I am in my second semester about to be done in two weeks.
0: And then you go on summer vacation.
1: Yep we get about a two month, um, break. And then we come back for residency. Um, the Goddard graduate institute residency starts August 5th. So I'm in residency from August 5th through 12th.
0: So do you count your, I certainly count you amongst the, the class of undiagnosed visionaries. Absolutely. So what is your undiagnosed vision that you are studying for and working on and dreaming up and and how is that process unfolding for you So i
1: am studying sustainability and social innovation in the textile and apparel production industry which is a global industry My vision is to help to educate as many people as I possibly can about the devastation that the clothing industry and textile industry wreaks on the world in a whole. And just because we don't see it in America doesn't mean that it's not happening. And if we close our eyes, are we okay with it? And um, there's many different areas within ethical fashion and eco green style and sustainable practices. And it can be broken down by many different categories. It starts at cultivation through fiber production, through yarn production, to colorants, to weaving the fabric and or finishing it, depending on that. And through all those different phases, there's many different levels of pollution unethical treatment of workers. And we don't know that. We're here in America. We want to buy those $10 jeans. We want to buy that $5 t-shirt. And yes, we're all at this point where that's our norm. So I'm reading and studying all about how we got here and how we got to the norm of fast fashion, like companies like Zara, H&M, Forever 21, how they're turning over so quickly in their styles and their trends. And my goal is to educate the mass public on where did your clothes come from? What is the cost? Not the cost of $5, but what is like the documentary that's out there right now, that's trending, is called The True Cost. And it breaks down, what is the true cost of that t-shirt? And, or that pair of pants and who's bearing all the real costs when we're not paying anything for it and it's sad it's a sad state right now for the fashion industry on that level
0: so americans are becoming more and more aware of the the actual cost of new technology like smartphones and computers they're Mm -hmm. coming to realize that there are lots and lots of people dying doing slave labor and dying in africa to mine these rare Kind of precious and semi precious minerals that are essential components and parts and elements that go into these smartphones yeah. and mobile devices and computers that have become completely ubiquitous in our society. Right. Pretty much everybody has them. Right. And I think Americans are starting to become more aware of that. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right about, in terms of fashion, the only thing Americans are aware about is sweatshop labor. So, right. take a very well-known product that most people are very familiar with and buy, mm-hmm. and follow the chain from its origin through the whole process absolutely. to to when it shows up in the stores And the stores that it shows up in that people can then buy for some ridiculously cheap amount considering the actual cost that I hope you will spell out in detail. Absolutely. Just as an example.
1: So I guess I would start with a t-shirt because many people within the industry have deconstructed the production life cycle of a t-shirt because it is so ambiguous with everyone in the United States that most people have a t-shirt. So I would start with, um, I actually can go with my t-shirt. We'll start there. Um, it is a gray t-shirt, short sleeve shirt with a pocket. And It is 100% cotton, so this started in a cotton farm, and probably being grown, my guess would be somewhere around Bangladesh. So in Bangladesh, there's a farmer who is growing cotton, and this cotton is mass-produced, and it is highly treated with pesticides, and that's the global norm as of right now. Cotton must be treated with pesticides to get the rate of fibers to be high level so that it can be produced into yarns. So right now, the global standard besides the United States is high levels of pesticide use, insecticides, herbicides, all of that. Um, During the cultivation of cotton, there's also a huge wastewater problem. The way that we right now technologically are at on a global scale is that we are not irrigating cotton the way that is the best practice. We are losing thousands of tons of water a year in irrigation in soil. That's completely destroying the soil product and Maybe not being able to replenish the soil quality for further generations, and not only that, but water is being wasted with the chemicals and carrying the chemicals all over the place. This is happening in China. Runoff, runoff, runoff. runoff. It's which is is it,
0: a, which is literally infecting.
1: Every the, level of the, the
0: aquifers, yeah, yeah, all the all the other water, yeah,
1: yeah. So I focus on the water aspect because it is such a human need. Everybody needs water. It's something that is classless, you know, faceless. All of that. We all need water for our bodies, for our food, for everything. And that's a big important factor to me because once we pollute the water systems. These are irreversible problems, you know. I come from New York, the Hudson River. You don't ever go in the Hudson River. You don't eat fish from the Hudson River. This is for decades now. I know what this is like, and this is just in our country. So that's the cultivation aspect. From that part, you know, we have Eli Whitney, the cotton gin produced in the industrial revolution and that's really where our cotton boomed from and it became a necessity and so it goes through processing and it gets cut off of the bushes taken down it needs to be cleaned out stick branches you know remnants taken out of it into the fiber production stage and then it's carded and it's flat, but comb straight so that all the fibers are parallel and long. And then it's pulled through a roving machine. Through the roving machine, it makes it a circular, draws it tight. Through the roving machine, it's able to be spun after that. So it comes as a thick, not rope, but... And then from there, it's twisted, pulled, tightened into the yarn form. Once you have cotton yarn, you can really make anything. So the yarn is then knit for a t-shirt. So it's gone into an industrial sized knitting machine. This t-shirt is a jersey, a simple jersey, which is most everybody's t-shirts. And that comes in a natural color, which a natural cotton color would be almost a beige, like your shirt, kind of a little lighter than that. And depending upon where it's end use, enters the bleaching stage, which is another problem fortunately bleach can be recycled and reused which is a good thing and can keep it sustainable from that point on it is knit into this fabric bleached and depending upon its end use again it can be dyed at either the fabric point or it can be garment dyed it could be yarn dyed fabric dyed or garment dyed most t-shirts are yarn dyed and for a t-shirt like mine which is a gray, it is dyed with a colorant for the cheapest way. You would use chemical dyes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is the standard in all levels. So then it enters the dye phase. Your t shirt wants to be green. So that's the point when the fabric would be dyed green. This also is another extremely polluting aspect of the textile and garment production industry where dye vats, which are huge and they're dyeing large, large amounts of fabric, are leaking into water supplies and causing horrible situations for small towns where these factories are located, where their entire town is dependent upon the water system and don't have the technology. And... I've been in situations where I was working in the fashion industry and I had to pick up the email and say, okay, let's talk about where this dye vat is at. And they say, okay, we should have it ready. Contact us on Monday. I contact them on Monday and they say, unfortunately, the dye vat leaked into the water supply and our entire town is shut down for three weeks because we have no water. That's a problem. And I'm the only person that knows that, not the customer, because it doesn't matter. The thing that the customer wants is that $5 shirt. So that's another level. And then garment production, where you come into the factory labor, sewing, cut and sew garments. T-shirts are reasonably easy. All you need is a few seams here and there. And then it can go on to maybe being printed, screen printed like your shirt is which has a little logo on the corner that's a screen printing so that's and on the back yep that's screen printed for sure and that's after the garment is made so in t-shirts wholesale you can just buy the plain shirt and then you can put your brand on it or make your nonprofit shirts or whatever it is I think that a large part of our fast fashion is that we have so many of these items. You can buy a t-shirt anywhere from the dollar store to a high luxury brand. And everybody pretty much has a t-shirt. Think about all the people that have it. Do you just have one t-shirt?
0: No. Not me. Not me. Most of my clothes are t-shirts, whether long sleeve or short sleeve.
1: And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing at all. And I base my wardrobe out of t-shirts as well. Um I think the problem that we as consumers face is there's always another t-shirt around the corner. You know, you can get another one. And for me, I wear my t-shirts out. I wear them (laughs) until my armpit is exposed or there's a giant coffee stain that I can't get out. But even then, I'll probably still wear it.
0: I'm kind of disappointed and sad that I wore probably one of my cleanest shirts that's totally intact. I have so many shirts that have as many holes as they do shirt and that <laughs> and stains. is great. I love that. I pretty much buy almost all my clothing from thrift stores. Perfect. But get this. Yeah. I'm still wearing and using clothes that I bought in thrift stores from when I was living in San Diego. 18 years ago. That's I've been amazing. here 18 years and most of my clothes are from that generation. Yeah. With holes and threadbare. Those are my and favorite everything. kinds.
1: When I was in high school all I did was buy vintage t-shirts and this was before vintage t-shirts were like the mainstream where you buy vintage should No, I want it the real deal vintage. Right. I want that hand, that touch. Hand for the people not in the fashion industry is the touch. When you touch it, is it soft? Is it mm-hmm. hard? Is it
0: stiff? Is it right. stretchy? And in San Diego, they have giant warehouse sized thrift stores. Mm-hmm. The real thrift stores where you're paying usually 50 cents to a dollar for amazing. t-shirts. Yeah. And just a few bucks for a pair of Levi's. Nice. And for me, that was a pilgrimage. Every Saturday morning, I would go down to the giant Amvets th- thrift store down at uh-huh. the bottom of the hill because Friday was the day that they they got, they got all their yep. stuff and they put it all out. And then Saturday morning is like, you know, kid in the candy store day yep. you just go hog wild. Restock day. I would spend a good two, three hours going through the that. entire place. Every rack, me too. And I would usually only spend around 20 to $30 and come away with just a massive amount of great stuff.
1: Yeah, that no one wanted. That would have gone into a garbage pile had they not donated it. Yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: And a lot of the stuff is really great. Amazing. Great. Amazing. Great stuff.
1: I I absolutely concur. I I mean, as a child, I used to go into the city with my dad and coming from Westchester County, New York, we didn't have very many vintage stores. It wasn't, I'm going to say it's a class thing. And it is because there are a lot of people that do not want old used clothing. Mm -hmm. And there's people that only want used clothing because it lasted. So there's a big differential. When I was younger, I really appreciated the old trends. I was obsessed with the 60s. I was obsessed with the 70s, and they weren't really on trend then. So I had to go to the vintage stores and really almost do my historical research on, look at this brand. Oh wow, like this is an example, like Wranglers from the sixties and seventies. And they had amazing Lee bell bottoms when I was younger, which was like, yes, this is what I need. So I dressed myself in all older clothes, vintage, everything, and those were my prize pieces.
0: Another factor in this for me is that I hate shopping at new clothing stores. I hate the vibe. I hate having salespeople come up to me and ask me questions because I'm clueless. I don't know what I want. I only know what I want when I see it. Right. And most of the time in new clothing stores, I don't like anything I see because the fashions, as you know Mm -hmm. very well, are changing all the time. All the time. And they're incredibly fickle. Yeah. They're not based on anything other than some... Literally a fickled finger of fate kind of yeah. thing. Right. Trends are
1: interesting. And unfortunately, we've gotten to this place in the trend world where merchandisers and designers working on corporate were working in a two season cycle. So you have winter and you, you know, fall, winter, summer, spring. We've escalated that. And these big brands, like, H&M and Zara and Forever 21 and Kohl's and Target and everything like that, they're able to put new merchandise in their stores on a weekly basis. That's quick turnaround for production. That's quick trends. That's getting the trends out there off the runway in the cheapest possible version into the stores. And the trends are pushing for fast fashion, because for $7, you can buy the new hottest top that looks like the celebrity that just wore it out to dinner with their friends. And you'll look like them, and you'll be as trendy as them. But what does that say? Why do you wanna be like them? And how long does that last? They can be weekly. I mean, the cycle right now, you can have so many different trends playing off of each other. And then these big box places like H&M and Zara and Forever 21, they will put it out there. They will put the same trend in a
0: hundred different ways. But it must be a dream thing for them because they're getting maximum turnover, maximum opportunity to make quick, easy Profits, selling mass amounts of stuff, and the whole built-in obsolescence thing is moving faster than ever imagined before. Right, so they're making huge profits. Yeah,
1: huge profits, and actually, H and M is one of the biggest. They've faced so much backlash in activism because of a huge factory. Fire and it was traced back to H and M production, and they've worked on becoming more conscious because of their fast fashion and throwaway fashion, if you will. It's like, okay, I need to go out on a Friday night. I don't have anything that's cute enough. I'm gonna go buy an entirely new dress, and I can get it for fifteen dollars and look great. Maybe I won't wear that again. Maybe I will. Maybe it'll rip by the end of the night? Maybe it won't. We don't know. And those factors are also creating a profit for them. One-time use. Mm -hmm. This is good for this month. And then in a month, you're going to be over it because it's so trendy and it steers away from the basics. Me personally, I am a basics fanatic. Yes, I might have a little bit of trendiness in me here and there, but my trends are aren't really coming from runways they're coming from unique historical trendy spots
0: i like your jacket i mean what do you call that what it It is a i would call it a sweatshirt shrug a shrug i love the term shrug i've never heard that before with thumb holes but it's with thumb oh my god that that's way too stylish for vermont and yet it looks so comfortable so this is so that it's totally vermont yeah
1: if i told you i've been wearing this all weekend over it, my it has a look of,
0: of kind of dinginess like exactly which i like i can relate Love. to that. but
1: yeah. then if you look at it look at the beautiful oh, mandala prints yeah. it's gorgeous and i actually purchased this shrug three years ago from urban outfitters their clearance section, because when I was shopping retail, because right now I'm currently in a phase of my life where I'm not purchasing any new clothing for 2016, I am only buying secondhand or using what I have and making the best of it and upcycling it. But when I was doing that, I go to the wholesale mm-hmm. because, you know, the cheap clearance, because- so how much was that? It was 17 99 Wow. And actually this shrug is made by Alternative Apparel, which is a socially and ethically produced fashion line that does a lot of cottons and basics and is my favorite brand, so alternative how, apparel.
0: So, so how can they afford to sell things that cheap if it's environmentally friendly and socially you know fair trade yeah. and all that kind of thing? So uh,
1: let me take you on a little yeah. a little scheme of this, this yeah. shrug. I'll tell you right now, it was on the sale section, that means a lot of people didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. So the price that this was marked at originally to be sold on the Urban Outfitters website or in their store was roughly around $54. Mm-hmm. That's the markup. The cost that they had to produce this was probably somewhere along the lines of $15. You know, 17 that they want to clear out the inventory because it didn't sell. To me, I love that. If it didn't sell, that means it's weird. (laughs) And it probably will fit me really well. And I also knew that it was a piece that would last and go with
0: every outfit. So it sounds like you may not like being particularly trendy, looking like every, dressing like everybody else. I
1: definitely do not like dressing
0: like everybody else. You have a very deliberate eye for dressing other.
1: Other, yes. In high school, I made all of my clothes. Every day, I had a different outfit. I made my clothes the night before, and I wore them. Because I didn't want to look like everyone else. I never have wanted to look like everyone else. I love making something that no one else will have. It comes back to the uniqueness, the individuality. When I was younger, I wanted to show who I was on the outside, like what was inside, I wanted to show it on the outside. And the way that I identified was by dressing to who I was as a person and doing things that people might look at and be like, wow,
0: nobody's doing that. So how do clothes express who you are and how does that change and evolve in your life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because that person in high school isn't the person I am right now. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I'm really about comfort, functionality, long lasting. If I buy this shrug, will it last me 10 years? Fashion wise, because it might not quality wise, but could I make this work for a long period of time so I don't have to go back? Like after I bought this and I had it for six months, I went back on the website and looked to buy this same exact thing because I found it and I was like this will last forever and it's a piece that I don't ever want to leave my wardrobe and it's come through because I wear it so much. For me I dress very basic, I wear solid colors, I wear comfort, I barely wear any wovens unless in pants which are these are knits, sweatshirt, t-shirt, pants are wovens because of comfort That's the most important to me. I want to be as comfortable as possible. I don't want to wear heels. I don't wear heels. That's not in my... I mean, I'll I'll wear them if I have to be in a wedding. Uh, Or if I have to go to a really nice black tie event, which is very few. But that's not what is important to me right now in this place. I know who I am on the inside. I know who I am. And I know that most people that know me know who I am as well and I don't need to make that mark as much through my clothing. I want people to look at me right now in my life and say I see the person not the clothes. Whereas when I was younger I was trying to show that person through my clothes and Then for them to be like, wow, she dresses so differently. I want to talk to her. And then through that, they would get to know me and see, oh, yes, this is a total reproduction of who she is on the inside. And she's just letting it out with colors and this. At this point in my life, I'm humble and I know who I am. I don't need my clothing to do the expressing. I'd rather fade off into the
0: background. So how do you reconcile the issue in our kind of communities where Many people think of fashion as being superficial.
1: Right. And I've gotten to that point. I've gotten to that point where I think fashion is superficial. And I find certain styles to be superficial. And I guess I'll put it in perspective. If I see someone who is dressing really sexy, I have two thoughts. One is that woman is extremely confident. I'll talk about a female in this way. The woman is extremely confident and she exudes sex and she wants people to know that. Or I take it as I want people to notice my body because I don't have anything else backing it up. So it's hard to pick that. But if you know what the trends are, you can look at a group of people and look at you know, maybe I am judgy, which I might be, but it's... We an, all do we that. We all do. And you can say, they're all wearing the exact same formulaic outfit. I'll do an example. I went on a trip with a bunch of people I know. And what was really popular last summer was these... Not a shrug, not a caftan, Stevie Nicks type. Oh, you don't know, Tony. <laughs> Come know. on. <laughs> like... um, <laughs> long <laughs> I'm not coming up with the word I'm thinking of like a a long bathrobe that doesn't close kind of like a shrug but in woven material and florals and maybe fringes are
0: you kidding people actually wear that kind of stuff yeah. up here no
1: up here so anywhere different. okay so last okay. summer uh-huh. the hot like for the mass trend was these like flowy like I want to say caftan but it, that's not what it is
0: it's this, like a kimono. Is it? Is it sort of a like a takeoff on the old Big Lebowski outfit? You know, the bathrobe?
1: It's not like that. I, I, I'm going to think of the word shortly. <laughs> anyway, so I went away with a group of eight girls. So we went to Florida. I was the only Vermonter, and the majority of them were from New York, Westchester area. And Which is where you're from. Where I'm from, yes. So we all got ready for dinner, and I watched them all come out in their outfits and it was like a replication. Oh, you have a tight crop top with this flowy robe thing and a tight shirt with six inch heels and a big statement necklace. It was like a prescription. It was like, okay, yep, you've got every item that's needed to hit the trendy thing. Yep, you too. Oh wow, do you guys care that you all look exactly the same? Because you do. And then I look at myself and I'm, you know, I'm completely in something different. I've got like a black crop top. Oh my, it looked like a sports bra top. Then I had high-waisted, flowy printed pants that were see-through and my Birkenstocks on. And we went out. And I was proud not to fit into that prescription.
0: So how did they respond to you and what you're wearing? I guess I get a couple of different
1: responses
0: in the things that I wear. And I mean, from them. Well, I'm going
1: okay. to talk about the New York once over. Okay. Because there's something in New York. When a female comes into your observation, and you can't see viewers, but what I'm doing is I'm starting at the toes, and I'm looking entirely up, getting to their face, going back down to their toes, and then making eye contact. That's what I call the New York once over. Mm-hmm. People are looking at your outfit, trying to decide what is that? How do I feel about that? What is she wearing? Who is she? You know, all those questions. How can I judge her? Great, do it. I don't care. And what I get with my outfits from these prescribed dressers, as you will, is I get the fake, oh, I really like your outfit. Thanks.
0: I don't respond. So they're trying to be nice. Yeah. Because you're you're either a friend or you're like of, a family yeah. friend. And it's not like I look bad. Uh-huh. I just stood out on my own. They're it's, making an effort to follow, the to trends. be yes. within the confines of, of the
1: what tr- is cool yeah. and what is trendy. For me, I don't care. I don't care what people think about what I wear. If I could, I would be naked all day, but unfortunately women aren't allowed to be topless all the time. In New York they are, so I could have done that, but you know, jobs and all. I find that it's really tough to look at someone based on what they're wearing and to actually judge them because I don't find that to be a way that you can actually learn anything about someone because you don't know. If someone looked at me, they could say right now, She's got a sweatshirtish thing, a t-shirt, and khakis and flip-flops on. Fine, this is my work outfit, you know? This is the most comfortable I can get, and I may even wear this tomorrow. I have friends that would never wear an outfit twice, and I've been there. I've done that, and I was good at not wearing an outfit twice because all I bought when I worked in New York was black and gray. Black and gray match together no matter what. So every item I bought matched with every item. And it was great for sustainability because my outfit sustained and I never worn an outfit twice, but I throw a different accessory on or whatever. And I find the people who are in that prescribed look, if you go to their closets at home, they will have the prescribed looks for the last year and a half still hanging. They're not going to wear them. They knew they probably wouldn't wear them more than twice. But that's taking up space in their closet. That's purchases that didn't need to happen if they could have just found their own inner expression. Or whatever makes them happy, not what makes the people looking at them happy. And that's the difference of who I am. I'm not dressing for the people around me. I'm dressing for myself. I'm dressing what makes me happy today. But when I get dressed up, I'm dressing up because I hardly ever get dressed up. So, you know, it's like, ooh, here's an expressive time for me to put a little fanciness into my outfit. Fanciness in my terms, not other people's
0: Mm -hmm. terms. So your vision, what I heard was that you want to educate people on the way clothing is produced and how it evolves in this way that, reveals the true cost of everything is there another level to that another stage to that are there things that you want to do to change all of that or is that yeah
1: um it's such a deep and systematically rooted problem that it's not like we the people can fix this this is historically you know, we've chased the garment industry out of New York. We've chased the cotton producers out of the United States. And we've created this level that it's hard to ever come back from. And it's with markups from corporations and, you know, the average markup on a garment is around fifty-three percent. So what they pay for it, maybe the entire thing cut and sew, finished, shipped, six twenty-five. So what are they selling that for? Probably $15. So this is what our world is going through. If you want to make a profit, the only way you can really make a profit on a large scale is through using these unethical options. And so there's tons of companies that are doing this, but all their prices are expensive and it's not, in the realm of what the mass market can afford. And yeah, we can tell these people no matter what, like, oh, this will last you 10 years. It doesn't matter. People don't understand that. So it's switching.
0: And it runs contrary to fashion.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. So it's a very psychological marketing systems, policy, governmental. There's so many interdisciplinary levels that go into the fashion industry that Americans don't see don't care to see. And then when they're done with something, don't care where it goes. Oh, I donate it. You do? Where does that donation go? Because 15% of the donations go to places. The rest go to a trash heap.
0: So all of this is based on extremely short-term vision. Short-term everything. Everything about it is short-term. Quick turnover, quick profits... Right, fast fashion.
1: And so there's this whole opposite end of the spectrum called slow fashion. Hmm. Artisans, organic, sustainable practices and production dying, going to the cultures that are doing these things and saying, we want to learn about your skills. And then the whole transpiring and free trade, all these contribute to a slower fashion practice, which is catching on. But who is it catching on to, to the people that care? And how do you get everyone to care? Mm. Like I compared, and I talk about this with Carla, since Carla Hosmoskowitz is my advisor this semester. And we talk a lot about how, historically, what was that campaign that changed Americans, you know? And we talk about like the Green Movement and how there was a point in history where people used to just throw their garbage on the ground. And what was the point where people stopped? And when people started looking at each other and saying, you're littering, you're a bad person. And that psychological marketing twist, how can we implement that into our garment production? Because the garment and textile industry is one of the biggest polluters in the globe. And we lost all of our jobs in America for this. We have no tangibility to the product. We have no tangibility to the work. It come from a long line of garment industry family members. My father's parents were both pattern makers and cutters in the garment industry and were sewers. And the fact that I sew and know how to sew so well, I may be one of the only people out of like 25 people my age 50 people that know how to sew, it's gone. The traditions of making clothes, passing it down to your children. I remember every Easter, my nanny, my grandmother, she used to make me an Easter outfit and it was the best thing that could happen to me because it was handmade with love. I picked the fabric and I got to wear it on that special day and it was like, this is my Easter outfit and I will wear it as much as I can until I outgrow it because my nanny made it for me. People don't care about that. I mean, I do, you know, obviously. People don't care. People don't mend. They throw away. And I think it has to do with traditions being passed down as well. On my mother's side of the family, no one knew how to sew. No one. Not one person. On my dad's side of the family, my nanny's side, we all knew how to sew. I got a sewing machine at six years old. And if you look at my nanny's three grandchildren, we're all in the fashion industry. And something inside of us will always bring us back to our grandmother because that's where we saw that when we were younger. The quality of the clothing and what she made and her working so hard as a single mother into her eighties making clothing and having patterns from the seventies and all of that. And it's part of who I am and part of my heritage
0: as well. So you're from Westchester mm-hmm. County. Westchester happens to be one of the wealthiest yes, it is. counties in the world, Yes. right? Are you from a wealthy family? No, I am not. So how did you end up in Westchester mm-hmm. County? How did your family get there? What, you, what were you doing there? And what is the tradition that you come from growing up there? I and mean, how does that affect your life? It
1: definitely has affected
0: my way into the fashion industry.
1: Um, So I'll start with my grandparents. My mother's parents, my grandmother and her brother and mother and father immigrated from Hungary during the rise of Hitler. They escaped and they moved directly to Westchester from Hungary. So my grandmother moved from outside of Budapest to Yorktown Heights, which is in Somers, and her family set down their roots. They established their life there. My grandmother went to the same school. No.
0: Contextualize Westchester County and these different places you're talking about a little bit. I'm from Manhattan. Yeah. And thing about Manhattanites is they don't have a clue about no. anything outside of Manhattan. It's all upstate to them. You live upstate. No,
1: I live 30 minutes away from here. It was definitely suburban, yards, fences, you know. And
0: how close to New York City is it?
1: Well, so the borough of the Bronx goes as north as to Yonkers and Yonkers is where Westchester starts. So Yonkers, Pelham, certain areas on the Hudson, those are the southernmost aspects of Westchester. Then from there, it's Yonkers, there's Mount Vernon, there's Eastchester, Scarsdale. Then you hit around White Plains, which is the big city. Of Westchester, the central city, which is kind of in the city, White Plains, and then it goes up, and from White Plains, you have Pleasantville. I'm kind of going on the train track right now because I rode it every day for so long. So you know, it, it goes all the way up, and then where I grew up is the last town in Westchester before you hit Putnam County, which is the next northern county above Westchester, which is right above Manhattan. So I live very close to Danbury, Connecticut. Like really close. So our mall was in Danbury, lived ten minutes from there. But Lower Westchester, there's different areas. I mean, Scarsdale is known for being very wealthy. And then ten minutes away from Scarsdale's Yonkers, which has a lot of problems with violence, drugs, gangs, you know, those kinds of things. And then if you go north past White Plains, It gets really burby, burby. very northern Westchester feel. That's where a lot of the money is from Bedford to Mount Kisco to Katona to Armonk to John J. South Salem area, Walkabuck, all of those areas. And I lived in Somers, which was more of a blue collar town than the old money of Walkabuck, Katona and areas like that. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, her parents, they met in Yorktown. And they got married after my grandfather was done with the Air Force, and my grandfather built a house. He bought a piece of property in a growing area that was going to be diverse with lots of different people moving up from all over, and he built the house.
0: So this is the American dream, Yeah, the classic American dream of working hard to build.
1: And then on the other side, my grandmother escaped Nazi Germans, and her family was so lucky to make the decision to move when they did because a lot of her family didn't and we don't have much family so we have the all-american dream the air force with the immigrant and started their family my grandmother was born jewish and her father died when she was around 10 and her mother remarried a catholic man and he adopted the two children and they converted to catholicism which was kind of the thing to do of the time, you know, let's be Catholic so we can go to the Catholic schools because that's where the better schools are and stuff like that. So my grandmother changed her last name. Her name was Judith Ann Schwartz and she took on her stepfather's name and became Judith Ann Hills, definitely taking away a lot of her cultural association with her name. And My grandfather and her got married when my grandmother was 18. My grandfather was 20. And they started their good old Catholic family. Kids right away. No birth control. First baby, pregnant. She may have been pregnant when she got married, which was my mother. And 11 months later, Irish twins, another kid. And she didn't plan any of them. And she had six children, 12 years in age, both of them working. My grandfather was a custodian at the local school. My grandmother drove the bus there. So they weren't wealthy at all and had six kids in a three bedroom house. So, you know, four girls, two boys. There was a lot of girls in one room and they had no money. And I know that my mom tried to get into making her own clothes at a young age because she knew she didn't have enough money to buy the things she wanted to. So she started getting into that at a young age. My dad's side of the family was extremely wealthy and they came from a big Irish family, the McDowell clan. I'm sure you can look it up, but you know, they were a big family that settled down in the South. There's counties named after us, big slave owners. And my grandfather was actually kind of excommunicated from the family, kicked out of the money, kicked out of the family, kicked out of the jobs because he married an Italian immigrant. And that was looked very down upon. My nanny, the one that I tell you about, she was born in Calabria, Italy. She immigrated to the Bronx, and she and her husband moved into Yonkers and started a family. They were both working in the garment industry and doing that together. And my grandfather was an alcoholic, an abusive alcoholic. And... He beat his wife and his kids and my nanny left him, kicked him out of the house and kicked him to the curb and she worked in the garment industry when she could, but she started an at-home tailoring service to help take care of the kids, make clothes in the house, so she had money coming in. And that's what she did her whole life. And my grandfather became homeless after that. And my father and his sister and mother would see him rummaging through the garbage cans at the grocery stores.
0: So did he rebel against his family and then regret that decision for the rest of his life?
1: I think so. I think that's what it was. And I think that he rebelled and saw what the rebellion got him, which he hoped would be more. And it didn't and I don't know much about my grandfather or I don't know any of his family I'm the only person in my family to carry on the McDowell name but I don't even know who that traces back to mm-hmm. and it's tough because you know I don't want to have a name that has to do with alcoholic abusive behavior you know I'm the
0: or only southern one. slave owning
1: obviously yeah. I mean you know that's a huge thing. I don't even know if those are my roots because I don't know, but I know it's a huge, yeah. So that was my parents' upbringing. So they both grew up in Westchester. My father, Lower Westchester, Yonkers. My mother, Northern Westchester, Yorktown. And they ended up meeting in White Plains, My father was a computer programmer. He went to computer programming high school in the 70s and was a genius, and he also was a jazz musician. So when he was around 18, he had the horrible choice of whether to go into the computer programming world, which was extremely lucrative, or follow his passion and keep going with his jazz music dreams and play gigs, and he played Carnegie Hall, and he was doing real good. He was hanging in the East Village. But unfortunately, they both were heroin
0: addicts. Yeah. Your mother and father? Yes. Were heroin addicts? Both of them. Wow. So where did you come into this picture? Mm. So my parents And where did you find yourself?
1: Right. So my father was married at 18 to a Jewish woman named Robin who forced him to stop pursuing music as a profession and forced him to... Said, you need to be a man right now. You could be making this much money. Stop diddling around, jamming out with your friends. And so he stopped his music and he went straight into computer programming and started making a lot of money. And that's when he'd stop
0: being a junkie?
1: Uh, Sure. We'll say. We'll say sure. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, He started at 16. I don't really know on and off, but he could have been lying to his first wife or whatever, and it ended, maybe he relapsed because he wasn't happy and he realized that music was his passion and, you know, that was his heart and... Following and it, in his father's footsteps? Yeah, absolutely following in it. Not his father's... F- rebelling, you're saying?
0: Or Not drugs. rebelling, but, but making the wrong choice and then regretting it?
1: Yeah, I, I... I don't know if my dad regretted... I mean, there was definitely regret l- later on In his life, I think he realized in marrying this woman, he made the wrong decision and was just trying to, like, I guess, do the right thing, do what society told him to do, settle down, get a job, get a wife, and he was miserable, so he divorced her Mm -hmm. a year later, so that was at 19. My mom married at 18 as well. She got married in her backyard in Yorktown to her first husband, Phil. That's all I know. Um, I think they were divorced four years later, and pretty sure doing drugs the whole time. She got kicked out of a bunch of schools in Westchester, got sent to live in Indian reservation in South Dakota. So she graduated high school on an Indian reservation in South Dakota with my grandmother's half sister. She took my mother in because she was kicked out of all the Catholic schools and everything for drugs. And so after graduating, she came back to Westchester and she went to college for mathematics.
0: This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardrick. Time flies when you're having fun.
1: Uh I love it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, then my mom um, got married again, but I think that she married someone... They might have been boyfriend and girlfriend, but he definitely was from Greece and worked in the diner industry, and she was waiting tables too, and I think they were casually dating, and he said, will you marry me for my green card, and she said yes, so they went to London, they did, it came back, a couple of years later, that was over, around twenty six. Ash, my parents met, they went into, uh, they, my dad was working, writing programming for a company down in White Plains, and my mom was hired as a new programmer as well, my dad trained her, and they fell in love, they were married within a year, but they were both addicts, and they knew that, and they were both better or they were functioning, I don't know, nobody knows. And then I came around, they planned to have me, they weren't on drugs for a while, they you know, were doing really good, they had picked their lives up, they were making a lot of money, like six figures each in the early 80s, late 70s. Both geniuses, Mensa, like ridiculous. And uh, definitely the black sheep of the family, so smart that no one else understood them, like graduated school early and everything, like doing these crazy jobs where no one else in my family has any job like that. They were geniuses, but they were messed up. You know, they had me, I was born 83, My parents were doing good. My mom didn't have to go back to work. She decided to stay home and be a stay at home mom. She was a painter and a musician as well with my dad. She played the bass, they would jam together. They were at a place where they understood that, yes, he has to go out and work, but we can still have our passions and make them the focal point. You know, they were very into meditation, Eastern philosophies, they were into juicing. This was all in the eighties. We had sprouts everywhere and you know, I remember like eating sprouts out of the garden. And when I was three, my parents decided to try and have another baby. And they went to the doctor, you know, to see what was up. And um, my mother got tested for AIDS and she came back positive. And somewhere between when I was born and three years old, my mother relapsed. My father relapsed, I don't know. And my dad never shared needles, my mom did. And so she was diagnosed with AIDS when I was three. This was one of the first female cases in Westchester County ever. White collar, rich, suburban, young couple with a brand new baby. And her health started to fade. And my dad was working. I don't know the details of when the drug use And who was using, who wasn't, what was happening. But I do know that when my dad was working, my mom would drive down to the Bronx with me in the car and buy drugs. And I have memories of these things. And, you know, I guess I didn't realize until I was older these trips and what those memories were. Um, but I know my aunts tell me about it, how my mom would call and say, I'm making a run down to the Bronx. I just wanted to let you know I have Kelly with me. And you know they would be like, you can't do that. And she would be like, bye and just go and I think my dad found out about those things after she was diagnosed with AIDS and on my fifth birthday my mother collapsed at my birthday party March 18th 1988 which was at a McDonald's I remember it was a really cool birthday I was super pumped about it (laughs) and um, my aunts came and finished up the party everything went fine I didn't really know what was going on my mother went to the hospital and she never came out she was having respiratory problems, all the AIDS complications. She had hepatitis C. And when she went into the hospital, she was put into an extremely intense room one that had warning signs, locked padded doors, people that were going in and out in suits because she was the only person in that hospital with AIDS. And, you know, they didn't know about it, they didn't know what to do. But my dad never got AIDS. And what ended up happening was she had a heart problem from intravenous drug use because of her veins and everything. And they tried to do open heart surgery. And during the surgery, she became a vegetable and was brain damaged. And so it was on life support. And she had to do not resuscitate. And my father had to make the call and pull everything. And that really hurt him. It really, really, really messed him up. That was his partner, everything. After my mom died, I was kind of in a state of limbo. I didn't know what was going on. I vividly remember my mother's funeral because I was so excited that all of my cousins that I never got to see were all in the same room together. It was so exciting for me. I had no idea. And after that, me and my dad went to live with his mother, my nanny. We were living in Connecticut, Norwalk, Connecticut. We went to live down in Westchester with her and uh, my dad relapsed and things were really bad. And I had no one to take care of me, and...
0: So, who were you living with?
1: That time, I was sleeping on a pull-out couch with my dad and my nanny and in
0: a one-bedroom apartment. So, your nanny was... was the enabler. The, was the enabler of your father. Oh, yeah. His whole life. But she was also the only stability you had.
1: No, because she wouldn't take me in. Oh, ah. She said that she would not be responsible for me. She would not take any of that. So my mother's mother and father were just retiring up in Somers. So my dad said, I don't know what to do. And my grandparents said, the only way that we'll take her is if you sign over all privileges and all custody. So my father gave up custody of me and my primary guardian became my mom's mom and dad. And I was an orphan, a ward of the state. And my dad was doing God knows what, on and off. I would hear from him here or there, I don't know. So I lived with my grandparents. They were both retired. So now they had their seventh child basically moving in with still some of their empty nest kids still living there. So I lived with my uncle, my aunt, who were the younger ones that still lived at home. And I started at Summer Central School. How old were they? My uncle Brian was going to Westchester Community College. So I think he was like okay. 20. My Aunt Barbara was probably like 25 or six. And you were five. And I was five. Okay. So I went to live there, went to Somers. And you know, you talk about how like, oh, not being rich from Westchester. It wasn't that I wasn't just rich. I didn't have a mom. I didn't have a dad. I was being raised by my grandmother and my grandfather. I had no brothers or sisters. I was poor and I didn't know that this was all different either. So when you start a new school in kindergarten and people say, oh, where'd you come from? And you know me as a child, I was like, oh, my mom's dead. And they're like, well, why don't you live with your dad? And I was like, I live with my grandma, my grandpa. And they're like, that's weird. And so I always had this stigma that I was different. I always knew I was different, always. It was extremely apparent. I live with my grandparents, none of my friends do. They have moms and dads. Huh, this is weird. A year into my living with my grandparents, my grandfather got lung cancer and died within three months. So my grandmother was forced to go back to work and take care of me full time. My grandmother's, this is my mother's mother. She's not a warm person. I felt the regret, the resentment, everything. I felt it daily on my life. We were poor. I got my clothes from Caldor. My friends had Gap clothes. I knew it, you know, after a certain time, you knew it. I wasn't allowed to go shopping. We never went on vacation. Every day my grandmother would come home. I would have to go to daycare after work. And, you know, my grandmother would be like, oh, I hear the sighs. Oh. I knew she wasn't happy with what was going on. and. I was the main reason, and I felt that my whole life. I was very lucky to have my mother's sister, my Aunt Terry, who was, they were Irish twins, but they could have not been anything but completely different the way that they look. My mother was 5'8", blue eyes, black hair, straight, like beautiful. My aunt Terry was five, one, curly thick hair, beautiful too, but in, they didn't even look like sisters. Um, my aunt Terry had two girls, two daughters, and Renee is 11 months old younger than me kind of like my mom and my aunt and me and my cousin Irish twins were 11 months apart too kind of but you know not the same parents and then my aunt also had Shauna she was only supposed to have one so me and Renee could be best friends but Shauna happened oops <laughs> and so I was very close with them and my aunt would take me on the weekends and I would sleep over so I could get to hang out with my cousins but my aunt my cousins were rich they had a huge house huge huge house I knew it they got to go on vacation. So I was like this, I, I hate to say it, but I was the charity. I was always the charity in my family. I was always the feel bad for Kelly. and But I never felt that way inside. Like I never thought that I'm a charity case, but I felt everyone doing that to me.
0: But your aunt, did she love you or was she, she relating did. to you as a charity case? No, she loved so everybody me. everybody else saw that, that you were as a as charity case, but the actual relationship that you had was good.
1: Yeah, everything was really good with my aunt. Unfortunately, her partner really hated my mom and they always didn't get along, but he actually treated me very well as well, even besides that. So I grew up in an extremely rich area, living with my single grandmother, poor no, mom. Sometimes saw my dad. But just a happy person, you know? Like I was You were a happy person. Oh, yeah. I was everybody's friend. I was always giggling, talking, so happy. How How did you end up that way? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I know who I am, so I can tell you who I am. I mean, I've always been a fighter. I've always had to fight my way to the top, but I also
0: Where did it come from? Who Who were your influences? Who did you connect with? Growing up that gave you some of that that Um, strength, that joy, that who you are.
1: When my dad started to come back into my life, he's an amazing man, amazing man. And I definitely owe all of my happiness, sadness and woes to him. He was an extremely empathetic man and taught me about caring and love and understanding that nobody's perfect. And some people have problems, but you have to look past that like him and my mother. And I think in setting me up with these life goals, it was a way to be able to look at the world and say, wow, it could be so much worse. Look at how lucky I am. And that's what I took from everything and in every step that I lost or I didn't have I said it could be so much worse and maybe I'm not like my friends but I love these people too and they love me so they're able to do it and not judge but I did face a lot Growing up, I mean, I I got made fun of for where I lived. Like people would throw money out the window of the bus when I got off at my house because I had a green chain link fence around my house and it was like the trash house of the neighborhood and we had trucks and old cars on our yard, which is normal for Vermont and I don't think bad about it at all. When I look at the house that I grew up at right now, it was huge. We lived on 3 acres. I wasn't poor in my mind looking back at it. It was just in proportion to what I was subjected to. And, you know, my best friends were rich, they were poor. I think that my grandmother associated me with a lot of friends that also had a similar situation. Like, I was friends with a lot of girls that were being raised by single mothers. I had three girlfriends who came from single families that didn't have any other sisters that only had brothers. So all of us kind of came together almost as like that only girl child too. So I grew up that way and... My dad taught me a lot and he was clean for a while. He, he was, you know, on and off. And he taught me about culture. He taught me about music. He taught me about love. He taught me about the other side. He taught me about the rancher book, all these crazy things. Like he taught me about the sixties and music. And he would bring me down to the the blue note in the city and be like, you want to hear some good music? Let's go, you know? And we would do so much. And he never let me think that Westchester was all there is. And that's something that I respect because to my grandmother her whole life that's all there was she never traveled I don't even think she ever went to New York City you know so I was able to get that hometown raising of an evil grandmother mom if you will but with that cool dad that swept in sometimes and was my escape in a way and he taught me everything he was my influence Everything, anything I needed to ask, I can ask my dad. And he opened the, the channels of questioning and analyzing and thinking and treated me like a an adult at 10. Like he's like, I'm a heroin addict. These marks on my arms are from my disease at 10. I understood it. I didn't share it with others, but you know, taught me about, oh, there's this out there and the grateful dead and... Jazz music, and let's go do this, and let's go on a weekend excursion. And you know, when it was bad and he was using, he wouldn't call me for months. So you know, it was up and down. And it's like when it's good, it's good. You take it. It could be worse. And I think that growing up was so little, and having to make everything for yourself, to make the clothes that I wish I could afford, to make myself as happy as I was, so people wouldn't feel bad for me when people were like, oh, your mom died? And I was like, yeah. You don't have to feel bad for me. I mean, this is life. Don't feel bad for me. You know, like, I am who I am because of where I came from. I wouldn't be who I was. I might be one of those prescribed girls, you know? And eventually, I lived with my dad in high school, and my dad tried to kill himself many, many times. And... In high school, my high school graduation day, he tried to kill himself, and I left, and he got sent away for a really long time, and then he ended up in the New York City homeless shelters, just like his father. And in 2006, March 26th, he hung himself in Van Cortlandt Park, the final straw. And, yeah, it was my last semester of college. So
0: your father taught you about the deep complexity of of the human condition of yeah. life.
1: Yeah, and In, love.
0: And love, all of it. All of it. All of it. All of it. He made a real mensch out of you. Yeah. The kind that we rarely see anywhere. Right. Because and nobody has seen any of it. Because no. nobody has lived any of
1: it. No, and he tried to be a mother and a father and take all of the important like, influenced my mother was a hardcore feminist. So, he taught me extreme feminism at a young age. At seven, he said, You will never, ever have a man that takes care of you. You will be dependent upon yourself. You will be the one that is controlling your life forever. And it's true. I have been. I do what I want, I set goals, I do them. I don't jerk around. Every goal that I've set, I've accomplished. And I'm proud of that. And I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: It just totally comes naturally for you.
1: Yeah. It's like, if you want something, you have to go and get it because no one else is backing you up. For me, I have no one. I have no brothers, no sisters, no parents. It's just Kelly against the world, you know? My family
0: doesn't really get me. And yet, you don't feel like you're against the world. No,
1: I'm helping. Sounds
0: like you're in love with the world.
1: I'm in love with the world. For every crap thing that's happened to me, it's just a little piece of your story and the person that makes up you. And you you could look at me right now and see the giant smile on my face and no one would know the life I lived. And I do open up about it because if you could look at me and hear my life and then I say, But I'm so happy, maybe in your head, you might look back and say, you know what? I haven't had it that bad. There is joy to be found in all the travesties. And that's the inspiration I bring to everyone else. That's what I hope
0: you done it for me.
1: Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a big jokester, which I get from my Aunt Barbara, who is extremely sarcastic. She lived in the house with my... You're very playful. <laughs> thank you. Thank You're you. You're effusive in that way. <laughs> thank you. My, my family, my Aunt Barbara is sarcastic, crazy. She used to say things to me that are definitely not PC when I was younger. And then I'd go repeat them in school and get in a lot of trouble. And they'd be like, how did you learn that word at six years old? And I was like, oh, at my aunt. And my grandmother would be like, Barbara, stop teaching Kelly these dirty words. And she'd just laugh hysterically. And I was like, in some ways, my Aunt Barbara, because she lived in the house with my grandmother on and off throughout my life. She says, I'm so much like her. And I agree, you know, me and her, we're best friends and always have been, but I get my sarcasm, my dirtiness from her. And we could just sit in a room and just laugh. And she says, it's like the jokes you come up with. It's like you came out of my womb, Kel. <laughs> so I love her, love her. Yeah, gotta joke about stuff. You gotta smile. It could be so much worse.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, when I met you yeah, during Carla's show, yeah, I sensed like a whole universe inside that, yeah. that little body of yours, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't know anything about you at all, but yeah. I pick up things like that yeah. from people, and I've been experiencing that around Carla a fair Yeah. A because yeah. she attracts amazing people.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely am attracted to her teaching. She's a mentor to me, just as a woman of, in my mind, of power. Power of great knowledge and power. And that's the type of mentor I seek out and want to be.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. She has this ability to just create space mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Space to. for people to find themselves, to discover yeah. themselves, to be themselves. So they can yeah. just be in there and experience it for themselves.
1: Yeah. And I will say that my education at Goddard isn't just about research, knowledge. The Goddard process is all about self-discovery, self-care, reflection, knowing, being, doing, trust the process. And within my education, I've grown so much emotionally that I've taken looks at who I am and we write a paper, it's a change agent paper about who I am and how I got here and in writing it, you know, and putting these words down and typing them, it's extremely empowering for myself and I've come through all these different phases with my family because of my writing for Goddard and places where I want my family to grow and, things that I'm okay with saying that they're not okay with saying. Like the fact that my mom died of AIDS. No one talks about that. Never. Why? Why are you so ashamed? I'm not ashamed. That's my mom. I can't deny it.
0: That's part of the richness of your legacy of who you are. Yeah. And we have to integrate everything, don't we? Right. That's what makes us who we are. And it it is who we are regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not. And if we don't acknowledge it, it festers in the dark and becomes poison.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm also epileptic too. And this is something I wanted to get into as
0: well, because when I was young, I had a girlfriend who had epilepsy Mm -hmm. and she was an amazing, amazing, amazing person. So I'm really curious about your experience. What I've heard and, and read about, it affects different people in different ways yeah. obviously but there's often an element of genius of brilliance in these people because something about the way that their the brain fires fires it, exactly it shakes the brain out of these cultural and traditional ruts that humanity just has this tendency to get totally stuck yeah. in
1: yeah totally my dad used to call me an indigo child yeah there was just something totally magical right. you know he always thought that it was something him and or my mom did wrong, or my mom on methadone when she was pregnant, or who knows
0: what, you don't know. Right, and sometimes it takes tragedy to create the greatest blessing. Exactly. Like sometimes the greatest jewels come out of the most terrible mistakes or errors or whatever. So you can't judge anything about anything. right. There's so
1: many different levels. And for me, I take medication on a daily basis. I don't think I'm being who I fully can be because I take medication every day, hardcore medication. Because if I don't take this medication, I can't be in society. I can't go to work. I can't leave the house. If I don't take this medication, I can't drive. The fact that I even drive now is huge. I would probably have died if I didn't have this medication. So it makes you humble in the pharmaceutical business. You know, for me, I'm a natural person, but I can't live without these chemicals. And that makes you think about things too. You know, so I'm a, a package with so many different parts that if you wanna ask about one part, you can, you know, there's you're gonna unwrap the whole thing. But altogether, the way I am, to a normal everyday person is I'm loving, I'm caring, I'm empathetic, but I will call you out if you're not those things.
0: And even with these powerful drugs that you say you have to take, you have more life than pretty much anybody I know. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate that a lot.
0: And I've been blessed to have some amazing people in my life. So I know, I you, know what's Tony. possible and I appreciate real people yeah alive people who are made up of incredible complexity exactly you know I think the drugs that you have to take are a blessing for the rest of the world thanks (laughs) (laughs) because I think without them the rest of the world probably couldn't relate to you at all that you would just be off the Richter scale yeah in that sense that nobody could even comprehend you
1: yeah and you know epilepsy I like to say that I am neurologically dynamic my brain fires off in unpredictable rounds (laughs) and it could be a blessing I don't know how
0: but well life has this way of being what it is yeah you know from moment to moment yeah and anytime we try to figure anything out it has a way of laughing in our face yeah like oh yeah Yeah. let me show you this I got got something good for you (laughs) I got something for you right exactly try this one on right exactly So where are you going? What's your vision of your vision at this point and where is it going?
1: So when I was 18 years old, my goal was to graduate from FIT, the textile program. I've always been obsessed with alpaca. My long-term goal is to own one alpaca of any kind. I hope there's more when that came. That's a long-term goal or short-term depending upon when we buy a house. But my long-term goal that I just set while going and delving into grad school was by the age of 40, I want to be a college professor and I have seven years. So from now until then, I'm not sure. I'd really like to do some foreign traveling. I would love to go down to South America, study some natural artisanal weaving and dyeing all natural like From the land, production of fabrics, Guatemala, Peru, you know, something like that. I would love to do the Fulbright program. That's probably on my horizon in the next five years. And FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. When will you take me as a faculty member?
0: Oh, that's where you want to be.
1: I don't know if that specifically but I am extremely passionate about the education I got and that's where I can infuse an influence and I want to work in the industry with the younger generation, the innovators, the thinkers, the people that are going to step outside of the box and challenge the norms that are happening right now because it takes a revolution and you know what can I teach them about while they're in school so that sustainability and ethical fashion practices are on their agenda right up there with you know textiles 101 and get those thought processes flowing through the next generations
0: and it's happening at FIT and I want to be part of that and you are the revolution thank you And over the next seven years, you're going to be informing that revolution within yourself.
1: Exactly. So yeah, I'm studying a lot about how to inform the masses and how to create a revolution. And there's a lot of people that are doing this. And I want to be part of that expert team that's doing it. And maybe it's a small portion. I don't see myself being a small portion. I see myself being
0: big picture. You are a big picture. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Thank you i appreciate
0: that and things have a way of unfolding itself unpacking itself absolutely and there's no way for you to see it you can feel it right you can feel it right but you just have to allow it to unfold itself You just
1: need to let it flow trust the process and then you know somewhere before 40 fit in a baby maybe in the next year or
0: something and an alpaca
1: um, I'm hoping that if and when I ever graduate college, well, no, I will. But, you know, at the different levels, maybe people will give me gifts like thinking, of cash or I, an alpaca. How right? much is an alpaca? It depends what you're going to get. Well, what um, do you want? I want a pregnant alpaca uh-huh. because that's usually how you buy them. Really? Yes. Why? Because then you're getting more for your money. Okay. And because I think people will sell them when they're pregnant and make more money. I see. You can't import any alpaca into the United States. There is a hold on that, which is great, which is why I would love to go into the mountains of the Andes. I've done some extensive work in New York. I've traveled to a bunch of different alpaca farms and stuff. So over the summer in between my residency... This semester, I am going to be seeking out alpacas in the neighborhood all around and trying to meet some people and learn about and intern, trying to figure out all different... Natural agricultural processes around Vermont locally that I can get involved with and, you know, doing research. So, my goal for my time off is to really get out there and learn, like, spend a day at the Marshfield School of Weaving in their natural dyeing class. I've been experimenting with natural dyes from compost at home. You know, I'm I'm doing upcycling workshops, designing them for myself for residency, making new clothes.
0: Upcycling, yeah. What's that?
1: Taking old or donated or damaged clothing and turning them into something wearable. Mm-hmm. I was gonna wear something upcycled, but I decided I'm gonna save it for when I go to Nashville in two weeks with the flock as you will, of the prescribed people, and I'm planning my means of influence while I'm there by asking them about fast fashion and their purchases and really slamming them with facts about their purchasing. It's a start, right?
0: Mm
1: I think it's time. Yeah, you look like you're ready. I just have to go to the bathroom.
0: Oh, Ah, I was was wondering.
1: The shaky leg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The coffee. Yeah. (laughs) So much coffee. That's why I'm so wired.
0: This has been wonderful. I know. This has been great. I've totally, totally loved getting to know you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm an open book. Ask me any question.
0: You're a magical person.
1: Oh, thank you. You're a magical mystery tour. (laughs) (laughs) Which is my favorite Beatles album. Favorite song? Um, Yellow matted custard Dripping from a dead dog's eye I am the walrus My dad used to sing that to me When I was a little girl And he'd be like Yellow matted custard Whenever we saw like roadkill Dripping from a dead raccoon's eye Or something And I'd be like Ew that's so gross He's like it's a song, and then it's always just been that gross image in my head, and then getting into that song, and then I heard the whole album, and was like, this is one phrase of something even better, <laughs> yeah, so I'm a huge, huge Beatles fan,
0: huge, that was for my dad. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's truly wonderful. It's been
1: great. Yeah.
0: I sort of expected this to be great, but oh I had God. no idea how great it, it would be.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Tony. you're so nice. You made my day. And you know what? I'm off of my Game of Thrones high. Now I'm feeling WGDR high.
0: And you're ready for a whole new week.
1: You know it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll come back whenever you want. All right. Yeah.
0: You've got a front row ticket to me. <laughs> Thanks, Tony.
1: I really appreciate it. That makes me feel special. Mm-hmm. It really Thank does.
0: Well, you already are special. you. You know you. that already.
1: Neurologically dynamic.
0: It's just <laughs> one of the pieces of the puzzle.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that a lot. On that note, peace and love. Peace
0: and love indeed. And that was Kelly McDowell, local... Goddard graduate student, works at Goddard. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week.